Hello, and welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, and I'm here with my co-host, who is across the city from me right now, David Moser. How are you, David? I'm very fine. Good to hear your voice. Calling in from Pennsylvania today is Jean Hoffman Lawanda. She is the daughter of Paul Hoffman and the editor of an excellent memoir that her father, Paul, wrote, going through some of the most devastating and important events of the early 20th century. And the memoir has just been published by Earnshaw Books. It's called A Witness to History, From Vienna to Shanghai, A Memoir of Escape, Survival, and Resilience. And we're very pleased to be joined by Paul's daughter, Jean. How are you doing, Jean? Very well, thank you. Very well. Well, let's just jump into this. I I, I really enjoyed reading uh, the memoir. It was a really powerful and and moving story. And I guess one of the first questions I had, what's the genesis of this book? Why did your father write this memoir? How did you find it? And were, were you surprised by some of these stories? Or were these stories that you'd heard growing up and in conversation with your parents? Okay, um, so the, the genesis was after Dad retired in 1986, he decided to write something for his children and grandchildren. When he was a youngster in Vienna, he had found a family tree that was told in the form of anecdotes about the you know, relative who came to Vienna and played cards and lost all the money he made and jumped at the Danube and anything. He thought this was very entertaining. So... Um, He thought he would do the same for his children and grandchildren. He created it on an old word processor, so it was on disks, and he he printed it and gave a copy to me and my brother. But then it took us several years to find a medium that would transfer it so we could edit it. It was um, so that took some time, and you know how it got to Earnshaw Books was um, he published a book called Stateless in Shanghai by another series of long events. Um, The Shanghai Jewish Refugee Museum came to the town we lived in in Connecticut with their exhibit. And um, when it was found out that we had a connection to China, they said, wouldn't it be neat if we could make a local connection? So I connected with the Confucius Institute and um, the Shanghai Jewish Refugee Museum. And I generated two panels for our family, one about my parents and one about my father's sister and her husband, their story, that are now traveling around the world. And um, um, Lillian Willens, who had written Stateless in Shanghai, had was visiting Shanghai, and he said, said, I met this woman, and she's got a manuscript. He read it. He wanted it. And the rest is history. I think that for a lot of our listeners, probably most everyone is familiar with the basics of the history. But, but uh, you know, and your father's uh, story is is. Uh, very unique. Every every human you know history story is unique, but it also represents is representative of of uh, you know many of the refugees who came at the same time. So why don't you why don't you just give us a, a, a recount how why Paul Hoffman and so many other Jewish refugees chose Shanghai? Why was that a viable alternative? And then what mm-hmm. sorts of contacts and support groups were there? Um, for 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 people like uh, your father Paul to take advantage of, and you know what was it like when he got there? Yeah, you know, once the Anschluss happened, March twelfth, nineteen thirty eight, um, it was clear people had to leave, and people were scurrying, and people were waiting on long lines. You know, Nazis um, demanded that you had a ticket and verification of some place to go, which meant the visa. And um, Shanghai was an open port. You didn't need a visa. So um, 
I'm not sure still whether my father had any knowledge of Dr. Ho, Dr. Ho Fangshan, who um, was the diplomat in Vienna who had befriended Jews and disobeyed the consular general in Berlin and started issuing visas and saved anywhere from a thousand to maybe thousands of people by issuing these visas, which were not necessary for entry. My understanding is that, you know, the port of Shanghai with so many different nationalities, nobody was checked. Once you came, you could stay. So, um, you know, the, the important part was getting the boat ticket. And they, my grandfather and my father went and got it. And um, on the the Lloyd Trestino, the Italian line that had a um, boat that, or in boats that left Italy regularly. There was business travel and people started traveling there. As the war got started, eventually there were 20,000 Jews in Shanghai, 20 to 25,000 Jews. It was quite a shock. The Nazis only let you leave with the clothes on your back, um, the equivalent of 10 Deutschmarks, and or a hundred, um, you know, it was equivalent of my father said like $10. One ounce of gold. You know, there's a picture in the book. His family made him a signet ring that was and um, that we still have in the family today. And my grandfather also had one. There was a very wealthy Shanghai Jewish community, um, Sephardic Jews, who originally from were from Iraq, went to India in the mid-1800s, uh, made their wealth in the opium trade, and established themselves in Shanghai buying real estate. They owned the utilities, the families of the Sassoons and the Kaduris, and they built schools, they built synagogues. The um, Children's Palace in Shanghai is one of their mansions. So they sensed what was happening, and they made a building available that basically became a refugee reception center on Museum Road. And they, um, when people got off the boat, they sent buses and wagons to the boat. They brought them to the reception center. They gave them some place to spend the night. They were told to come the next morning. They were um, given a little bit of money and instructions on how to get started. Most of the people were given space to live in, in what was called the Hankyu section, which was the poorest section of Shanghai. This was only a year and a half, two years after the bombing. So the many of the buildings were in ruins. You know, one side of the street, the, the buildings were completely bombed out. There was no indoor plumbing. Um, people were asked to live in one room with, um, you know, no cooking facilities. They had little like hibachi stoves, which my father said was basically a flower pot with charcoal in it. <laughs> and some of the refugees, there was also a, a dormitory that was available to some people. There were soup kitchens. People were given ration coupons so they could get food. My father spent one night in Hankyu and then found some relatives, distant relatives, who agreed to house him on the floor and then found a room to stay in with two other young men outside of the ghetto, on, in, I think in the French concession, on the corner of the French concession, uh, above a bar. And that's how he got started. But um, this family basically helped him through those first few months. He talks about, you know, going to Christmas parties and New Year's parties because he arrived um, the end of November and he didn't really get started doing things until after the new year. His first job was um, selling advertising for an American language radio station. W, w, um, XHMA was the call letters. 
Then he started tutoring, got his life started, was able to make enough money to finally get his own room. One of the you mentioned, of course, that when many of the refugees arrived in Shanghai in the 1930s, they they were in some ways welcomed or, or greeted or supported by you know existing members of the Jewish community in Shanghai, including, of course, these wealthy families who came who were referred to as the Baghdadis, you know, the Sassoons, mm-hmm. the Hardoons. But it is interesting. You think about we we think about the Jewish community in China and the different waves of Jewish immigration to China that occurred, mm-hmm. um, and the diversity of the Jewish community um, in mm-hmm. China. And it, it is really fascinating that you know that the the refugees that arrive in the 1930s are in some ways the the latest in a long line of groups that have arrived mm-hmm. in China, both in Shanghai and of course in Harbin as well. Uh, the, the groups that escaped the pogroms and then later on mm-hmm. uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And as I understand it, uh, your your mom, uh, who appears somewhat later in the book, uh, but your mom is kind of, it's interesting, and your family represents, um, you know, two different waves of immigration into China. And your mom came, your mom's family, if, if I understand correctly, came from Russia via Harbin. Yeah, well, they, they, um, my grandfather ran away from a, a shtetl called Neville, south of St. Petersburg. This is my next book, by the way. Um, and um, he hitchhiked and took the train and ended in Harbin. He did not want to do military service. He ran away. He was the oldest of eight children, hid his identity for his entire life. I didn't find out till recently that, that he had family because he was afraid. Um, the Soviets came into Harbin as late as 1945 looking for deserters. My grandmother's family left legally from a town near Gomel. I believe it's in Belarus now by the train. They left three older daughters behind because they were already married. My grandmother was the youngest. They came with four children. And um, yeah, the, that Russian community blended in somewhat with the white Russian community in Harbin. And then in 1940, when, you know, as war made living conditions harder, they migrated to Shanghai and they lived in the French concession. They had their own separate community. They had their own synagogues, but they did um, benefit very much from the Baghdadi community. My mother went to the Shanghai Jewish school. Her brother went to the Shanghai Jewish school. Um, My mother ended up working for um, the gas company, which I believe is the Kaduri's own, the gas company. Picture of my mom with, you know, like a hundred people sitting um, there, you know, mostly Chinese. She, she had learned typing skills and left school when she was 16. And um, she met my dad at a swim meet on Labor Day in 1949 at the Y. He was sitting next to her. <laughs> if I recall from the memoir, wasn't he there on a date with one of her friends? Mm-hmm. But the story was that um, she had paid for a towel. And as the swimmers started splashing, there was a little tug of war going on. And that's how he kind of, you know, introduced himself. Yeah. And her family was supposed to go to Israel. Her, She had belonged to a Zionist youth group called Beitar, a Zionist organization. And um, her brother left for Israel in 1949. And my family had already started making its way towards America. I had great uncle, my grandfather's younger brother, who got out early on as the war was starting and was had established himself in Boston, and he was helping family come to the United States. So if they hadn't met, 
they would have gone their separate ways. Well, I want to, if I can, I want to kind of go back to a little bit to the beginning of the story. I want I talk about some of the sort of cruxes of this of this memoir because mm-hmm. I I think for a lot of listeners who aren't familiar uh, with the history of what was happening, I mean, most people are familiar, of course, with the horrors of the Holocaust and, of course, the rise of the Nazis in Europe. But I'm, I'm not sure that many people are always aware of the incredible difficulties that people of Jewish descent experienced in all over Europe, just getting out of Europe. I mean, there's this idea, you know, of course, why, did, why didn't people leave? But of course, many people weren't allowed to. And you, you mentioned uh, He Fengshan, the, the Chinese diplomat, who was one of many people who assisted Jewish refugees with exit visas, the necessary paperwork. Shanghai would have seemed at that point to be kind of an unusual destination. And like this is, in 1937, it was a city at war. And I think one of the things, too, is that there weren't a lot of places that where refugees were welcome. Yeah, no, um, a lot of places um, refuse to issue visas. Um, you know, the whole issue of quotas. Um, I think Dad mentions in the book that the quotas, even after the war, were still based on American laws from the 1820s that 2% of the existing population in the United States. So who was the existing population? the Anglo-Saxons and the Germans, the, left, the Hessians left over from the Revolutionary War. So um, it was difficult to get a quota number. Everything was you know, d- determined by that. And um, you know, standing in line all night, trying to find a consulate that would talk to you and give you issue papers. And um, then there were, you know, having a sponsor, even, you know, I know coming into the current time, contemporary times, you know, do you have a sponsor? You know, do you promise that you will not, you know, be a burden on society here? Besides the fact that, you know, there was the abuse that, you know, immediately started happening. You couldn't walk the streets as a Jew in Vienna right after the Anschluss. You know, my dad talks about being, you know, stuck in the apartment and then trying to take a boat out on the Danube, a rowboat, and immediately being, you know, yelled at and, you know, cursed at and, you know, running home, you know, afraid for their lives. You know, that kind of fear, you know, until he crossed the border into Italy, he was living in that kind of fear. Yeah, I mentioned to you, Gene, just before we started, you know, that I could, that I just can't imagine all of these uh, sort of thresholds that, that your father had to cross from from you know extreme anxiety and and terror into relatively safe havens but throughout the book it's really interesting that at each each one of these crises or each one of these hardships he very often points out that this this was something that gave him that sort of added to his character or gave him some kind of an ability to cope with future problems that he mentions this uh, you know quite a bit I wonder if you could maybe describe describe for us what his life was like when he got there in terms of how he actually survived. He had very little money, very few contacts. He took lots of jobs. You just mentioned the one with the, as selling advertising, which he had none, never done before. <laughs> T- tutoring English, which was not his native uh, language. So he was being thrust into this very, very di- uh, multicultural, very messy society with all sorts of refugees and and polyglot. I mean, he he was being surrounded by all kinds of languages and accents. And just what does a sense of your what your father had to go through just to make a living and and eat by a living, th- and how that that his his personal story of how the skills he had to learn and master and confront during his time there. It's a fascinating yeah. account. Yeah, he, he had, you know, fortunately he was well-schooled. His European education 
um, really helped. He was gifted in math. That was his strength and um, obviously gifted in languages because he, um, you know, German was his first language. He, lo- he learned French in school as a second language and ended up going to Aurora University, now Fundang University, um, where he um, did everything in French. And then English, he said, came quite easily. You know, he had very little um, instruction before he left Vienna. But I guess it, it seems to me that English was the lingua franca in Shanghai because he could read it. He could, you know, he never learned Chinese because he couldn't read it. He was a visual learner. And because he could read it, he could learn it. So he he did end up very sick in that first year because he would only eat bananas because that was safe to eat, because you could peel them, and um, they were cheap. Um, he was undernourished. And then this family, you know, made it their mission to fatten him up, and he um, kept tutoring, and even he even tutored German students and Dutch students and um, was able to earn enough money. And then the, the next thing that happened, though, was um, he needed to get his parents out of Vienna, his um, deportation orders came in October 1939. So he scurried again because so many refugees were coming in to Shanghai that now some restrictions were being imposed and he had to guarantee that his father would have a job. So he went to the head of the Jewish hospital and said, I'm not going to call this shit in, but just give me paperwork that says you have a job for him. Because a lot of professional people were coming to Shanghai and the actually the hospital had all the doctors it needed. So he did get, you know, one of the first numbers of passes to bring his father and mother to um, Shanghai. The Nazis insisted that one ticket be paid for in dollars, but you weren't allowed to own dollars. So that uncle in America paid for the passage of one of my grandparents. And so my grandparents came in early 1940. Then um, my father's sister had gone to England. And um, England was allowing refugees who agreed to be housemaids. So she was 20 years old. She went as a housemaid. And again, they saw the writing on the wall. My father said, it's going to be safer in Shanghai than in Europe. And he said, come in September, because I will have more students again once school starts again. I'm going to be a little short in cash in the summer. And he sent her money for a ticket on a French boat. And the day she left, war broke out. And all the Jews, when the boat was mostly Jewish refugees, were put in the hold and considered prisoners of war because they were Austrians and Germans. And um, and for one month, he, could, he did not know where she was. All the telegrams and cables that they said, you know, they would not tell him where she was. And the day the boat was supposed to arrive, he went down to the dock and there she was. And she said, I'm hungry. They had been treated like prisoners of war and threatened to be, you know, taken off the boat in Indonesia on French French soil. I mean, it's it's this amazing moment where like the family gets reunited. Mm -hmm. And from it's, you know, after everything they'd been through, you know, there's a certain moment of safety, certainly not necessarily comfort, but safety. But then your father mentions, you know, there's sort of three moments he talks about in the book. He says the worst part was, of course, the time he spent, you know, when he was in Vienna, you know, during the time of Hitler. But the two other moments he really kind of he speaks to, um, one occurs pretty soon after the family is reunited. And that's, of course, the changes in Shanghai that came as a result of the war between Japan and China, the beginning of World War II, and particularly after 
the declaration of war between the United States and Japan. At first, it seems like Paul and his family, because they were not part, they were not British, they were not Americans, had a little bit more leeway in Shanghai. But then the Japanese changed their policy towards the Jewish population in Shanghai, although not necessarily as severely as perhaps their German allies had wanted them to. Well, technically, the Japanese um, wanted the Jews to be in the Hankyu area, ghettoized from 1937 on, that anyone who had um, arrived after 1937. And somehow between working and his connections, that had kept him and his family out of the ghetto. And then in 1943, the Japanese you know, clamped down. They said, everyone has to go live in Hankyu. And it was, I think, one square mile and that everyone was forced into. Now, the Jews who had been there, they had been living there for a while. They, there were restaurants. There was social life. They tried to make it as normal as possible, continuing education. But the um, actual physical structure, no indoor plumbing, no cooking. In cooking, they cooked on little hibachi-type stoves. Um, the conditions were terrible, and they um, did something that the Nazis did, was they made the Jews in the ghetto be the guards, that, you know, they had to do guard duty. And, you know, my father talks about how the trash heap at the end of the street, that, you know, one night he was had to be out there, and there was a corpse on the trash heap because the Chinese uh, couldn't afford to bury their dead, and they just put bodies out on the trash heap. That the Goya, who um, the Japanese appointed as the head of the ghetto, was this little tyrant who seemed to me to have psychotic breaks. You know, he would jump up on the table and slap people and say, no, you don't get a pass today. But they had to wait online sometimes, you know, overnight again for hours and hours to be issued passes to get out of the ghetto. And this um, devastated my grandfather. My grandfather had an office outside the ghetto. My father had set him up in a small medical office and um, he, he refused to stand in line and their health deteriorated Clearly, the, um, the, they were, there was um, dysentery. My grandfather suffered from dysentery, and they lived on the fourth floor, and the outhouses were on the first floor. And 40 trips up and down the stairs one night put him in the hospital. And, you know, my father suffered from malaria repeatedly. But my grandfather nearly killed him with, you know, high doses of the new sulfur drugs, and um, but got it out of his system. And then the bed bugs. I don't know who that, that you know, that every place... You lived, there were bed bugs and the war against the bed bugs, and then variations in temperature. You know, there's you know, the heat and humidity in Shanghai in the summer, living in these very close quarters um, without proper plumbing um, was really oppressive. So that, that lasted for two years. But he, you know, was extremely resilient and he went to university during this time. So by the time 1946 came around and he was teaching and he had kept the American, what was now called the American private school going because the um, head of the private school was interned by the Japanese because any Americans who did not make it out prior to 1943 ended up in internment camp. Yes, so an amazing he, part of the it's an amazing part of the story because he, despite all of these obstacles, he completes a university degree, becomes a, a lawyer. It, you know, medicine isn't an option apparently, so he, he turns to the law, and the, if you will, kind of the third act of his story 
before the family reaches America is as this hotshot young Shanghai lawyer in a time of incredible flux working uh, for a law firm that would be, you know, was, was one of the most famous firms in the entire city and became relatively well off. But also, I have to, I kind of, one of the things I, I was reading this book and I, and I guess maybe thinking about the position that a lot of us who live in China are in right now, things are changing very fast, even as things are going pretty well for him professionally. And I keep wondering, I'm reading this book, I'm like, at what point does he realize that maybe law career in Shanghai isn't a sustainable option. You know, like the communists have taken over, the staff, uh, you can't pay the staff. It, it, he, he references this as kind of the third moment in his story mm-hmm. that really challenged him. And I, I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that because I, I for me, and for me, this was the part of the book I, I, I was, I really kind of, I was really interested in because we, we don't have a lot of stories about the people who stayed behind. I mean, we have the folks who, I mean, there were a few people who were like after 1949 who stayed in China and there are, they did it for different reasons. But I thought this was an interesting addition to that narrative. And I thought maybe if you could maybe talk a little bit about, you know, he's a, a newlywed, new baby, new job, new government. What's, what is he, what is he thinking? Well, the, the, the baby didn't actually come till after they left, but my mother was seven months pregnant when they left. This was basically a crapshoot in my mind. He did not want to be a refugee again. Um, my mother's parents went to Israel, and Israel in 1951 by now was a very, very difficult situation. And he was not a physically strong man. And he didn't see himself working the fields and, you know, being um, on a kibbutz or such things where he would need to do physical labor. He did not know Hebrew and he just didn't see himself that way. As you mentioned, the law firm, Allman, Cops and Lee, Judge Allman needed to leave. Other American lawyers were in Ward Road prison and coming out if they came out half themselves without a leg, you know, very, very sick. And um, so he made a deal with his boss. He said, um, you know, you continue to pay me. I do deposit half my salary in an American bank and you guarantee, guarantee me first class passage to the United States and I will close down the firm. And the reason he was able to do that is his um, Austrian passport had been reinstated. So he was not... A, it's the same risk as the Americans, but I don't think they envisioned what was going to happen with the funds being frozen. Now, once the Korean War started, the funds were being frozen, and this became the ridiculous part because he was assigned a Chinese observer who watched everything that he did. You know, the Treasury was saying, you know, we can't send you funds, but the Chinese workers were saying, well, you have to pay us. You know, he started selling he everything he could sell. He um, was living in his boss's house, which Judge Norwood Allman had been living in Shanghai for many years. He had a nice house. There were five servants. There was a car. There was lots of liquor. There, there was things that could be sold. And it was interesting because, you know, he said, why did not the, the Chinese servants expose him? And he said, well, maybe they thought they wouldn't get paid if he they exposed him. <laughs> and um, eventually, the um, Judge Allman was, was in in the OSS in the United States. And there are letters, um, I believe a couple are in the appendices of the book, of the judge writing to the Secretary of the Treasury, writing to Congress saying, I left 
this man as my proxy. He, he is now in danger for, of his life. You know, he has a young wife, she's pregnant, and they got to help me get him out. And eventually the funds were unfrozen and he was able to pay off the clients that were demanding the money and close down the office and book passage. And till, the, till they got to Hong Kong, they were under, you know, ex- duress, um, you know, constantly being checked, suitcases being dumped, um, being, you know, quarantined until the next part of the trip. And um, it was was a very scary time. But I think it was, I think it was all, um, you know, a crapshoot. He, you know, he says that once he started working for the law firm and they saw the writing on the wall, there was a hope that the Chinese would be more Chinese than communist, that that lovely colonial lifestyle that they had with their social clubs and their business, that that would come back because the judge had been in the United States. He had been, when the war broke out, he was in Hong Kong and he ended up in Stanley Prison in Hong Kong for 15 months. And he went to the United States and he, in 46, he came back. He wanted that lifestyle. They loved it. They, you know, it, it, was, it was a nice way to live. Yeah, your, your father describes that in, in great detail. And uh, he seems to have had um, a certain, well, unbridled animosity toward the communists, uh, which came out in a, a long, uh, nowadays we would call it a rant, uh, for that they did that he wrote uh, uh, you know against the communists and uh, mm-hmm. communist governance that was read over the VOA this is 1952 or 53 52, yeah. I know, 52 written in 52 I think first broadcast 52 rebroadcast in 53 it sounds like that over a few months it was rebroadcast across the Far East and Europe yeah right yeah so uh, yeah talk a little bit about that because he's he had seen so much and as you say he had he had, he had, he had struggled mightily to establish a kind of a yeah. Uh, you know, uh, if not idyllic, at least very livable lifestyle there. And then suddenly along comes Mao and the revolution. You know, what were his main the sources of his anger and his uh, uh, rage really think, towards them? I think, you know, the destruction of the human spirit, the, you know, lack of respect for a person's individuality and honoring their integrity, that honest, good people were just being humiliated. I think this, you know, he he had that experience in Vienna of the humiliation of all of a sudden you couldn't walk the street and you were a unclean person and that didn't deserve even the most basic of human rights. I think that 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 was as painful to him I think as the actual physical conditions that he he could rationalize, you know, that the physical conditions and the difficulties of having a hard life, but I don't think he could accept anywhere that humans should be treated the way they were being treated. So I think that's that that was where the anger came from. That, that this was just totally unacceptable to treat people this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you recently uh, were able to to go to Shanghai and actually visit all those places, those that that were still standing or still recognizable. Mm-hmm. I want to just ask you what your what you saw and what your feelings were, but also I want to ask you about the the community that that. Uh, the Jewish community and how much it has been reserved and kept in touch through through things like the the Refugee Museum and other kinds of. Uh, you mentioned this other book. Uh, what was the name of it again? Stateless, stateless in Shanghai. Stateless in Shanghai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, it would be good. It would be interesting to hear um, that circle of, of friends or those those group. How much they've how cohesive they still are and how much those memories well, still well, un- mold them together. Unfortunately, um, that community is 
very old at this point. My father would be 101 today. <laughs> and um, there are not very many left. Um, they ha- uh, After the war, they had an international org- um, organizations that kept in touch through newsletters and reunions, the Yigut Sin. Um, they had a newsletter called the Hankyu Chronicle. People kept in touch. There are many books like this that have been self-published by people. There's one that reflects my father's story by a Canadian woman called Ten Green Bottles. Um, there recently, um, there's a fiction book called The um, Song of Jade Lily, written by an Australian author who just happened to be in Shanghai and saw a Star of David and said, what's this doing here? So the actual community in Shanghai, there is a group called the Chabad. It's an Orthodox group that has centers throughout the world, and they are allowed to use the synagogue very limitedly, the Ohel Rachel Synagogue, which um, still stands. Um, they didn't let us visit the synagogue. I was there just before the Jewish high holidays, and we were being told the synagogue was being cleaned, and the guard at the booth took out his phone and showed me a video of the inside of the synagogue, but he would not even let me cross the street to go cross the driveway to, because the building next to it was the Shang- is now what was the Shanghai Jewish School, and I wanted to take a picture, and he would not let me cross the driveway to take a picture from the front door. So, um, so, so when you when you were in in in, in the the, the Hanko ghetto there, what what things did you see? I know you got to see the the um, Ohel Moshe synagogue where your your parents were married, right? What? Mm-hmm. what, what well, we what, actually walked the loose. You know, we were in Tangshan Lu, where my father. And father's sister and brother-in-law, and my my cousin was born there in the Jewish hospital in Shanghai, and um, they left in '47 on a um, American military transport in April of '47. So you know, we we actually spoke with some Chinese people. Our you know tour guide spoke Chinese, and the it seems like these apartments have not changed. They're Chinese people living in these very confined spaces. Um, the addition has been that there are now sinks built in the front foyer of the um, of the apartments, but they still don't have indoor plumbing. Some, you know, we saw a gentleman carrying the honey pot down the lane to be emptied in the morning. So um, this, it's it hasn't changed. There are um, air conditioners sticking out the windows, but it's very much the same. It's an incredible story, Jean, and, and I, I really mm-hmm. want to thank you so much for, first of all, not only sharing it with us uh, today, but also for the work you, you put into editing and presenting your father's memoir and, and sharing it uh, with so many people. The, the family story is, is just incredible, and I, I think it also speaks to some chapters in the history of China, in the history of Europe, history of the world, that I, I think there are through lines to the present day that I, I think make it important that we were reading about this um, and still remembering these stories of that generation. The, the name of the book is Witness to History, From Vienna to Shanghai, A Memoir of Escape, Survival, and Resilience. I also wanted to mention, we, we talked about uh, your father's your boss, um, Norwood Allman, Judge Allman, who is a, a pretty important and, and uh, figure in the Shanghai community in the early 20th century. And he also wrote a book uh, called Shanghai Lawyer, which is available as well. It's another, mm-hmm. uh, another kind of memoir of that particular era. 
Mm-hmm. But but Jean, thank you, thank you so much, and uh, I, I wish you the best of luck with the book. Uh, you, you mentioned is there is there a follow up project that you're working on yeah, now? Yes, is there... uh, I'm trying to write my mother's story, and um, as opposed to my dad's story, I have no manuscript. <laughs> my, um, my mother, it's all oral history. I have hundreds of pictures. I do have documents as I did for my father. Um, I, I had my way there would be at least another 20 documents in the back of this book. Um, but um, like birth certificates, death certificates. And so I am researching the history of China during her lifetime. And so far I've gone from about you know 1920 to 1940 when her family moves to, um, to Shanghai. So Harbin was a very interesting place. I mean, it was a Russian city. And, you know, but there was that horrible flood in 1932 that really changed people's lives. And then there was the Japanese occupation that came around the same time. And um, you know, my mother was going to a school, Russian Jewish school, where she was learning Japanese because they were being taught Japanese because the Japanese was still occupying the city. And, um, and still, people did not learn Chinese. They were living in China, but they were not really living with the Chinese. It was... Hmm. Very interesting dynamic again. So I think at that time too, it was Manchukuo uh, uh, from yeah, like 1932. Was, yeah. yeah, and yeah, so it was um, you know very and very interesting. And to be in Harbin today and to see how you know strong the Russian influence was, you know, from the buildings to the food to the it, yeah. it's really then to see Harbin built up to a city of 11 million people. You know, right, it, it, crazy, absolutely crazy. Well, when you finish that project, let us know, and we'll have you on the podcast again. (laughs) I I hope hope it comes to be. (laughs) I hope it comes to be. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Gene. Thank you, David. And thank everyone for joining us. Another episode of Barbarians the Gate. We'll talk to you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you.